I want to begin with a question. Which is your favorite holiday? Any anybody want to throw out an answer? Fourth of Christmas. <laughs> Summer. <laughs> when I was growing up, it was Christmas for me too. I have to admit that. And uh, I have to confess though that it wasn't so much around the birth of Jesus at times, especially when I was younger. It was about the gifts that I was going to get, and maybe not so much in terms of what I was going to give, but what I would receive in that. But for us, the tradition was that on Christmas Day morning was when we would open our gifts as a family. And uh, so we'd get up early and we'd go down there and wait by the tree. And I, I think we most of the time we did it before breakfast even and then had kind of a brunch. But, but there's this uh, expectation that, man, we're so excited of what was going to go on. But let me throw you a scenario in light of that. What if that's your favorite tradition and what if the kids go down to the tree or in the room where the tree's at and they're waiting so expectantly to, to get after those gifts and dad comes down to that place and he says this we're canceling Christmas the gifts are going back to the store would not that cause just a little bit of turmoil in your family at that moment. See, that scenario fits a little bit with our, with our text today. I want to read the text to begin with here from Mark chapter 14. It's in your bulletin outline there, but look at how it goes, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where's my guest room and where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready there, prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when evening he had come with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began, uh, began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread in the dish with me, and for the Son of Man goes it is written of him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave, gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, All drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, there's a concept that I use, I've used for many, many years when it comes to looking at discipleship and understanding people. And I'll put that, this is the only fill in the blanks that you have here for this week. But when you think of presenting people complete in Christ, there's really three parts to it for me. And the first is, remember the head and the hands, and the heart. 
Now, obviously that's figurative, that we don't worry about my hair or whatever that is, but here's how it goes. We're supposed to speak to the head. As we look to disciple people, there's a place where there's things that we need to know, and even intellectually. There's concepts we need to understand and believe in, truth that needs to be rooted within our minds and that we can draw it out and understand what it is. But discipleship is more than just knowing information as well. There's the hands part. Now again, that's figurative. It's not literally hands, but it's the skills. So you think of combining the the head and the hands, for example, sharing the gospel. We need to know intellectually the parts of the gospel, but we also need to be able to take that and communicate that well to people. That's a skill. We think that just comes naturally. At times it just takes work and a skill, learn that skill of sharing that. I want to point out a verse to you where it really points out the issue of skill. And it comes from Psalm 78. Look how it reads here, verse 72. This is speaking of David. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hands. You understand this, he, as he led the nation of Israel, he was skillful in leadership, skillful in understanding people. There was things that he had learned in how to lead people well. And we need to grow in that area. But there's also a third piece that this verse implies. You notice that it says, uses the words, the upright heart. David had an upright heart. The heart is the motivational center of our lives. It's why we do the things that we do. And remember, Jesus says this about the heart. It's out of the heart that we do things like evil things. It could be deep sins. Or it could be good fruit. See, the heart really is the what propels us to be people of God, or to maybe walk away from God. The heart is really that core issue for us as well. So when we, when I actually, when I look at a sermon, at times I'm going, okay, does it speak to the head? Does it speak to the heart? Does it speak to the hands? Well, in this particular case, as we read this text, understand this, it actually starts with the head. With learning some things and knowing some things and understanding this passage, where my hope is that as we bring it into our minds, the next step that it would be flowing to our hearts and that when we take communion, it'll just a little bit later, that it would be push us and pull us to worship Jesus in a more profound way today. That's, my, that's been my prayer as I've walked through the week here in, in looking at this te- passage in uh, this morning. But if you've grown up in a church, You understand the temptation, we're having the Lord's Supper today, and the temptation is that this just becomes a tradition. Oh, communion today. And we go through the motions, and we do it. And at times, it doesn't become the worshipful event that really I think God is calling us to as we partake of the Lord's Supper. But understand this text today. This Lord's table that he's instituting here in, in our lives, and he's doing it back 2,000 years ago. Again, this took place in the upper room, in this where kind of there's a miracle that took place there. You probably caught that, where somehow somebody is getting ready a room and the master needed it. But somehow this idea is that we have to catch that what we're doing today 
is radically different than what the disciples understood as they were going into that upper room. As they were walking into that place, they would have walked out kind of with their mouths open and going, what just happened? See, matter of fact, if some of the Pharisees, some of the religious elite of that day, if they would have snuck into that upper room or, or they could have sat across from the window somewhere, open window, and, and heard the words of Jesus and what he said, they would have been running up those steps into that room and they would have been tearing them, their robes and they would have been screaming blasphemy. Heretic. That's, you understand, the distinction of what's happening here today. So we need to just take a brief look. We're not going to get into a lot of detail, but we need to take a peek and compare the Passover with what we're doing here today and what Jesus began to put in place. He he gathers these men, his disciples, in the upper room, and they went into it thinking, hey, we're going to do a Passover meal. Now, many of you maybe have participated in a, a Seder meal, And again, I'm going to leave out a whole bunch of the events in that meal. There's actually 14 different elements of it. But this meal that they prepared was a symbol of the Passover that we know it as today. It was about God's faithfulness in being Israel coming out of Egypt, out from under slavery. But Jesus does something where the, the Passover is supposed to be about God's faithfulness, and Jesus flips it over. And he begins to do this. This meal, guys, that we're going to be doing is about me. It's about myself. Jesus made this whole event around himself. And that was not to be the case. Matter of fact, in verse 18, if you read that closely, you notice that he begins this worshipful event of the Passover by announcing that somebody is going to betray me. How's that for beginning a worship time? Somebody's going to betray me. And as he jumps into this meal, things begin to change, and he begins to give them a different picture and a different meaning of this event. Look at verse 22. I want to come back to this text again. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. See, as soon as Jesus would have uttered those words, when they came out of his mouth, I think this, they were going, their jaws would have dropped open. What did he just say? They would have looked at each other and gone, okay, we don't get this at all. You have to catch this. By speaking these words, he just broke a 1,400-year tradition. 1,400 years. They were doing the same event over and over again every year. And Jesus comes to that upper room and he says, I'm going to flip it completely around. 
It's not about that anymore. It's about me. See, you have to catch this. Generation after generation after generation, the parents would have taught their kids and the kids would have grown up and taught their kids and their kids would have grown up and taught taught their kids. 1,400 years. That's how long it had been since that first Passover that occurred in Egypt. But here's where we need to learn to think a little bit and kind of put ourselves in our place where the disciples really were at. This annual event again, the Passover, they were looking forward to. It really was about the descendants of Abraham coming out of Egypt because of that. Remember, they had a famine and eventually Abraham's descendants ended up in slavery. But but this Passover was about that oppression, the bondage, being slaves, and God freeing them of that. Now here again, we got to understand the context just so we catch what Jesus is saying. This is the night. Remember, Judas had left to betray him. And this is the night they are going to come and grab him and take him away to a trial during the daylight hours the next day. See, this is the moment that he's getting ready to go to the cross. But this event was about the Passover 1,400 years ago. A time to remember. And there's a betrayal. And Jesus changes things. I I even think of that betrayal. and, And just think of that as he made that statement. And somewhere just after that, Judas gets up and walks out of the door. Do you ever think about what was in the mind of Jesus at that point? He sees Judas walking away, knowing what he's going to do. I just can't help but think, what were the emotions of Jesus at that point, knowing that he was going to be going and telling him where Jesus was going to be at? But you see, this Passover, this meal was so important for the disciples. Matter of fact, if you were to compare it today, it's almost like a combination between the 4th of July and Christmas for us, or Easter. It's that important for them. See, this Passover represented that they were getting delivered out of slavery. Now, we've never experienced that, but you think of thinking back if you were a slave at one point and all of a sudden coming out from slavery. But think of it this way as well. This really was the birth of the nation of Israel. They were a group of nomads, people, and they were in Egypt, but all of a sudden they're going to start the journey to go to a land which will be their land. The Passover was reminding them of coming out and now they're a nation. And also, I think it also reminds them of this, that they were God's chosen people. See, that event was so important. It was like it was a week-long party, but this was the event that really would remind them of what God did in Egypt. And understand this, this Passover meal, that God actually had commanded this meal to take place a thousand plus years ago. And they were to do two things. They were to do it every year. And the second one is this. They needed to do it exactly the same way. Same way all the time. It's still done pretty closely even today. But there's 14 different parts, and again, I'm not going to cover all of them. They would go through this tradition, and it would cover hours this meal. 
But normally the head of the house would, would stand up and, and he would talk about the different elements of the Passover and he remind them of the exodus of it. Now, now you have to understand, as, as Jesus really didn't do that, he began to break tradition. But these disciples, you know, you've got to catch this, they could have led this event. They were old enough year after year, they could have said everything right, they could have led it, and Jesus takes them down a different path. Jesus broke tradition, and he did it completely different. They had never done that, that this way before. But let me give you just a few pieces of this event. They began with declaring that this day was a holy day. And they read some, some reciting some of the history of Israel coming out. But it also centered this event on four cups of wine. And each cup represented four promises. That actually, the promises comes out of Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. But the head of the household, the dad, would usually stand up and he'd hold up that first cup and he'd remind his family that God promised to rescue them from Egypt. That was the first cup. And then they would pass the cup around and everybody would drink of that out of that same cup. Now, we're going to have a cup today and we're going to pass it around. And some of you are already getting nervous here <laughs> of doing something like that. Uh, you know, when I was thinking of this and just the picture of that, and how we're not—we have you know little cups in a tray. Um, at one of the Poland mission trips I was on, senior high and college students. It, it was a denomination over there. It's kind of a sister denomination of the Evangelical Free Church. And that Sunday we were at that event, and we, I remember sitting in the front row, and here they come up, one cup, real wine. And they began to pass it down, and our, you know, our kids were used to this, and there was a look of horror on their faces, actually, of going, what did we just get ourselves into? And then they would wipe the cup off, and they're going, is this sanitary? Um, you can imagine kids that have never experienced that before. But you understand the importance, this, this cup was very important, reminding them of one of the promises of God. But here is the interesting piece. Jesus took this first cup. There's going to be a second one. This isn't the, the second one that we normally refer to. But he didn't mention that promise. He bypassed it. And Luke actually tells us what he said holding up the first cup. Luke 22, verse 17. I think you have it on the screen. And he took a cup. And we had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves so they would pass around and they'd have to drink that whole cup. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's saying that there's something coming in the kingdom and I'm going to pause for a moment, not going to drink of this cup. You guys are going to drink it, but I'm not. But the kingdom of God is coming. See, he had just broken tradition, though, by doing this. And we can also assume if you combine all the different writings, all four Gospels reveal this event, but we can assume that he actually bypassed the second cup. He didn't go there with it. Now, one of the other traditions here, right after, the, I think it was in between the first and the second cup, there was a symbolic splitting of some matzah bread. If you've been at a Seder, you probably remember that. It would be put in two pieces. 
And the, it, what it symbolized was the Red Sea parting so the Israelites could walk across. It was a symbolic thing. This was then followed by some children asking the same questions year after year, and some of the adults then would recite the answers to those questions, which really gave the history more of the history of the Passover. But typically a father would hold up the second cup, and it was a story about the promises of God, and the promise was this. Specifically, it dealt with slavery. The second cup referred to you were once a slave and now you're not. You're free from slavery. Then that was followed by a hand washing before the next part of the meal. But oftentimes then the father right before that would give uh, grab some bread and he would hold it up and he would remind them that the bread represented affliction. If you don't know that, that the bread is called actually called the bread of affliction. And each person then would take a piece and they would eat it, but before they would eat the bread, each person would stop. And they would pause and remember the affliction of their ancestors, of what they went through. And there was other symbolic pieces to that. If you remember the Seder meal, there was this kind of fruity paste stuff even that they had on the plate to eat, to take a, a, a nibble out of. And that paste and that, of that fruit and nuts really symbolized the mortar of the bricks that they had to put brick after brick in the mortar that they had to do as slaves. See, it was highly pointed back to remember those events in Egypt. But it didn't stop there. Then there was also some, if you remember a Seder meal, they had the bitter herbs. A piece was passed around and it symbolized the bitterness of the slavery that they were while they were in Egypt. And Jesus skipped, skipped the herb, herbs and he didn't even talk about them. See, I think why he didn't even mention them in this, in this time period, he recognized that the cross would take away the bitterness of God's people. But then shortly after was the main meal. And then after that was the third cup. And tradition would say that the head of the home would take the third cup and it was the promise that God would redeem them by his power. Nothing that they did. It was by God's power. And it represented his, that redemption of God and that they couldn't do it in and of themselves. And then they would drink again. And normally the father then would take the fourth cup and, and that one was directed toward a future promise that one day Israel is going to be united with God and they would become fully God's people. But imagine the disciples there when Jesus is goofing it all up. He's breaking the rules of this tradition. See, right after the first cup, as they were doing some of the other pieces, he goes to the bread and he says, this is my body. Just by saying that, he's destroying this tradition. And he grabs that bread and he says, holds it up, this is my body. Now, there's a literalness to it. I, I want to show you what the Greek really reads, the way it reads. It says this, take because I am myself this bread. See how pointed that is? At that point, their jaws would have dropped open. 
From now on, the broken bread is no longer the affliction. Now that broken bread is about me, about my body. That he would take away the affliction of the people of God. See, the kingdom of God was going to be established and by breaking his body, it was going to begin. He was going to take all the affliction of God's people. And we know, looking back, he's talking about the cross. But think of the affliction that he went through, would go through here the next day. Lying down on that wood and them taking hammers with those square nails and driving those into his hands and his feet. And they, would t- they took that crown of thorns and they put it on their head. And you understand, if they would have pushed hard enough, that thorns would have gone into the head and little droplets of blood would have come out. And the beatings and the scourging that he took. And then put him on a cross naked. And the pain that had to be excruciating there. And here was the fact that this man had never sinned. And he, because of this, was about to become sin. And he was about to become separated from the Heavenly Father who he had known from all of eternity. There was a break coming. Now in the middle of the Passover, I need to back up a second, because in the middle of Passover was the main course. And that was the lamb. A lamb that would have been slain in the morning. And it was really, I suspect, for the kids and those younger, it was the best part of the meal. This food that they got to eat. But in the midst of that, as they were cutting up the lamb and they were dishing it out, the story would be told again of why the lamb. Dad would tell the lamb how it reminded them of that Passover night when their descendants were still slaves in Egypt. Remember, think back with me a second. Remember, God was prying the grip of Pharaoh off the people of God. And remember, God sent a bunch of plagues to help push them to let his people go. Remember the frogs, the flies, the boils, even turning the Nile into blood. But remember that last plague, the final one, the plague of death. In this final act, God would bring his justice on the Egyptians. Understand this, remember, God had warned Moses about this, what was going to happen. And God warned him because why? Because it was going to take place on both the Egyptians and the Israelites. God told Moses that he's going to send the death angel and he's going to kill the firstborn son of the Egyptians and the Israelites. Now, have you ever wondered, have you ever read that text and wondered why he would send the death angel to both the Egyptians and the Israelites? I think here's the reason. Both the Egyptians and the Israelites were equally guilty. See, the people of God and the Egyptians were both sinners. Both groups of people had fallen short and deserved condemnation. And at the end of the day, God's people was just as guilty as the Egyptians. But there was a difference. 
God provided a way for his people to be saved from this judgment. But here's where we need to ponder this a second. Because we look at this and ask the question, why did God give Israel the warning and not Egyptians? Why? Why did he provide a path out away from judgment and yet for the Egyptians, they were condemned. They didn't have a chance. Now, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with that question of God's fairness. Even in this setting of Moses and coming out of Israel. But I want to point a passage out that Paul writes to this question. I want to put it on the screen for you. It's in your notes as well. From Romans chapter 9, a hard passage for us. Look how it reads. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that by my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? See, we cry out, it's not fair. But look how he writes, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who is formed, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What's the summary of that? It's this. God is God and we're not. And we've got to live with that. And we've got to accept it. It's got to be okay. But there's another piece I think we need to recognize here, and that is the grace of God. Undeserved favor. The Israelites really didn't deserve it any more than the Egyptians, but God gave them grace. But let me go back to Egypt again. Remember, he told Moses that he was willing to make an exchange because of their sin, even when they deserved death. God, in his mercy, he was willing to offer the descendants of Abraham a substitute if they would take just a a spotless lamb and they would kill that lamb and they would take the blood and they would paint it on the doorstep or on the the railing of of the door. See, you catch the picture there. And the angel of death would pass over them. That's why the Passover, that's why it's called the Passover. It would pass by that house. But you've got to notice something when you go back to the meal here that Jesus is doing. Jesus, he, he skips the herbs and the fruit, and he even doesn't really talk about the lamb as it goes back to Egypt. He ignores it. And he, and he asks the question, why? It was the most impar- important piece of the Passover meal. And I think here's the reason. Jesus was showing his disciples 
that he was the lamb. They didn't have to kill a lamb anymore. That tradition was done with. For 1,400 years, that day in the morning, they would kill that, that spotless lamb. And he's saying, it's done. I am the lamb. See, Jesus is God's great exchange. Jesus is God's once and forever substitute. So God will pass over our rebellious hearts. But let me ask you a question for, for everyone here today. Have you put the blood of Christ over the doorpost of your life? Have you acknowledged that Jesus is the Lamb that takes away the sin in your life? See, if there's no blood, there will only be wrath and eternal judgment if that's not done. Do you see how Jesus, though, breaks tradition? Again, breaking that bread. But then he takes a second cup. And though it's supposed to have been the promise to ultimately redeem his people, not by their power, but by his power, he changes it. Look in verse 23, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. See, Jesus' blood was going to redeem them. And he redeems us. Because of the shedding of his blood, salvation is now offered. Not by efforts, not by work, not by trying to be a good person and balance the scale to where you think we have enough good deeds that we should earn heaven. He saves us because the blood of the Lamb was shed. Remember John the Baptist, Stephen? I thought of John the Baptist when Jesus, when they met, when Jesus was, was just starting his ministry. And John the Baptist saw him and said this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's why the writer, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, it says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was that Lamb. But let me give you one last piece to ponder. And it comes from the other passages. It doesn't come from this passage here. But there's really a question and the question goes like this. When you die, what do you want your family and friends to remember about you? Now let me throw a scenario out. What if, what if I did this? I knew death was coming. And so I gathered my kids and my grandkids around me. And on my deathbed, I, I say something like this. What I want you to do is, I don't want you to forget me. So once a month, I want you to do a meal. And I want you to remember me and think about all the happy times you've been with Grandpa. Does that sound normal? <laughs> I go, I don't think so. 
why would I make it around me? But you understand, going back to Jesus, that's what Jesus did here. He created this, we call it an ordinance, some call it a sacrament. It's this idea there that he wants us to remember rather than the Passover, what he's given to us is this supper that explains his mercy, his love, his grace, his freeness from sin. And he says this, do this in remembrance of me. But do you you catch the the difference between a mere human saying that? With all my flaws, if I said that, and then you compare that to Jesus, and there was the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Here's what I want us to do. I want to invite the elders to come on up. Here's my hope as we take communion today. That you will be reminded of the incredible affliction that God has taken on our behalf. Guys, you can hand out the bread. This represents that Christ took our afflictions on himself that we're no longer condemned when we take the cup this is about the blood that we have the opportunity to take that blood figuratively and put on our doorpost that God will pass by any judgment in our lives and I go have you done that He wants to free you, not from physical slavery, but from the slavery of sin. And the bread and the the cup reminds us of the freedom that we can have because of Jesus. So as you hold the bread, and we're going to take that together, as you hold that bread, just pause and just think of the incredible affliction that was put on him that we're called to remember today.